South Church, Paul Borthwick here in Lexington, Massachusetts, sending you a greeting, wishing I could be with you, but because of COVID, of course, not traveling. Actually haven't been in an airplane since uh, the month of March, which has been quite a shock for my traveling life. But I'm so happy we have the technology to be able to share this message with you today to launch your mission month with the theme Mission 316. I do thank God for your congregation and your ongoing commitment to God's global mission and to local outreach. And I'm delighted you've chosen this theme, Mission 316, because it's a topic that's very dear to my own heart and a theme that will really drive us back into the world. And even more, your theme is tied to the most famous verse in all of Christianity, John 316. Because when we're in very tumultuous times, dramatic times, changing times, we have to go back to the unchanging character of God and his unchanging word and his unchanging mission in the world. And from my perspective, John 3.16 is really the best foundation for that because it gives us a sense of God's heart, it gives us a sense of God's motive, his target, and the way that his mission is accomplished. So join me if you know it by heart, and let's recite together John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The verse is so famous that sometimes I'm afraid we can quote it, I don't know about you, but I learned it when I was in Sunday school, very young, probably the first verse I ever learned, maybe after Jesus wept, John 11:35. But it's a famous one that we can quote, but sometimes I think we can quote it without thinking. Some people hold it up at athletic events or they wear it, in, wear it on license plates. And, and it's something that we really need to unpack slowly to be able to get a full grasp of God's mission or what the mission 316, referring to the verse, is all about. So let's start by remembering the context. In John chapter three, Jesus is visiting with this rabbi, this fellow teacher named Nicodemus. He's come to Jesus secretly at night and Jesus begins, at least in the account we have, with some very direct speech talking about being born again. He goes on to talk about the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit like the wind coming and going. You, you see its impact, but you don't see where it's coming or going from. Uh, his own deity refers to the fact that he's come down from the Father. He refers to his sacrifice by referring to the Old Testament story of the serpent being lifted in the wilderness, verse 14. And he refers to the fact that he came so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. And then you get to this verse, John 3:16. It's a capsule summary, what I call in my book, uh, it's Jesus' elevator speech. You know, in sales, when you want to communicate the vision of your company, they talk about having an elevator speech, something you can say so quickly that between the first floor and the eighth floor, you can communicate it to somebody. And this is Jesus, if you would, elevator speech. For God so loved the world. You know it well, maybe you've sung it. But Jesus offers this amazing summary of his mission, and if I could say it this way, our mission in the world. And because the verse is so packed, I'm actually only referring to the first half. For God so loved 
the world that he gave his one and only son. So let's start with the first one, for God. It's a reminder of the fact that the mission in the world begins not with the needs of the world and not necessarily with our involvement. It begins with the very character of God. The mission of God flows from God's unchanging character. You see, God is the great pursuer, the great initiator. He's the one that goes looking for lost people. If you remember way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're told, enjoy yourself, just don't eat of that tree. And they eat of the tree and God, they realize they're naked and they hear God coming and they hide themselves. And God, who knows where they are because he knows everything, he's all powerful, he's all present, but he knows all those things, but he still says this question, Genesis 3, 9. And remember, this is the first interchange by sinful human beings with the almighty, holy God. People who realize they're naked, meaning they're ashamed, their shame has entered the world. And God says in Genesis 3, 9, Adam and Eve, where are you? You see, God doesn't have to know where they are. He wants them to know he's looking for them. That's the whole message of God's mission, going into the world and asking people without Jesus, where are you? Our God wants you back. Jesus picks up the same theme in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 15, he tells three different parables all about lostness. There's a parable of a lost sheep, there's a parable about a lost coin, and there's a parable about two lost sons. And, and those stories are all about God. God is portrayed as the one who sweeps clean the house looking for the, the lost coin. He's the father who goes out and welcomes the prodigal son and then goes out looking for the older brother. He, he's the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go looking for the one lost sheep. And several chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus demonstrates that same sort of where are you heart. When in Luke 19, Jesus is having lunch with Zacchaeus. And he says to Zacchaeus, you know, I want to have lunch at your house. And the, he gets criticized for having lunch with this guy who is a tax collector, despised by the population, and a sellout to the Roman Empire. But Jesus says in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Our God is a pursuing God, an initiative-taking God. He comes down in the person of Jesus to look for us. He goes into the garden looking for Adam and Eve and says, where are you? And let me just pause here for anybody who is watching at the church or by way of video. If you are sensing that you don't have a relationship with God, but you're listening to me today, let me tell you, God is saying to you through me, where are you? He wants you in a relationship. He's inviting you to that relationship. And when you, and he says, where are you? Will you say, yes, Lord, here I am. Now, the fact that God is a pursuing God reflects on our mission in the world. Because if we're followers of Jesus Christ, that means that somewhere back in our past, through a youth pastor, our pastor, our parents, or radio broadcast, TV, a book, a booklet, someone pursued us. And we became followers of Jesus. And the mission of God is God basically saying to us, I pursued you, now join me in pursuing others. 
That's why your church sends so many people out in mission, cross-culturally or locally, because we're sending them out to go looking for lost people. God's seeking heart, however, is expressed by that word that we have in John 3.16 and many other places, sent. Jesus says, I was sent into the world for this purpose. I was not sent to do this, I was sent to do that. And that word sent in the Gospel of John appears more than 40 times with Jesus referring to himself as being sent from God. Because God is a pursuer, he's a sender. He wants others to join him in the sending process, or in the going process. And Jesus comes as the great one who is sent. But then on Easter night, the language change, changes. And Jesus, risen from the dead, appears in the room where the disciples are terrified. And he says to them, peace be upon you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. In other words, all the words about sent up to this point have about, been about Jesus. But now he's saying, now I was sent to bring the good news to you and to die for that news, to raise from the dead. Now I'm sending you out into the world. And the practical application of that is this. We, as followers of Jesus, don't have to ask if we are sent. Sometimes people say, well, I didn't go as to be a missionary, I'm not sent. Well, that doesn't mean you're not sent, it just means you're not sent to be a missionary. But we're all sent. If you live in Lansing, Michigan, that's where you're sent. If you're a student from someplace else, you're still a student at that university, that's where you're sent. You know, if you're into the office as an accountant, you're a sent person there. Live as a sent person. You don't have to ask if you are sent. You only need to ask where you are sent. And many of the people that you support, they're sent someplace else. But you are sent where you live. And that's where we start. He sends us, John 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. God is the great pursuer, and he calls us to pursue with him. But there's another thing that's important to note about that. Because God is the first pursuer, and now he asks us to join him, he sends us, you always know that God is going ahead of you. God is preparing the way. God is the one inviting people through you. But he's preparing them before you ever get there. In the travels that I've had the privilege of doing over the years, perhaps the most common way I hear this story is in the Muslim world. Almost every Muslim I've ever talked to, and I'm talking maybe, you know, 50, 100, 150 who are now followers of Jesus, almost every one of them has a story of a dream, an appearance of Jesus, or a healing that set the tone for them looking for Jesus. One of my colleagues in Egypt tells the story about this lady who had a detached retina. And uh, because in the Quran, Jesus, or Isa as they call him, is the prophet who heals, uh, they, they sometimes will call out to Jesus to heal. And so she was calling out to Jesus. The doctor had told her, no more surgeries, you're going to lose the sight in that eye. She was calling out to Isa that he would heal her. And she said, one day a great light appeared in the room. My husband came in, saw the great light, and my eye was healed. Now, she hadn't yet become a believer in Jesus, 
but she knew Jesus did the healing and that set her on the pathway where she would come to other people who would tell her about Jesus and through a human avenue, a sent person, she would become a follower of Jesus. And so when you go into the world, realize you're sent. It might surprise you to look at me and say this, to have you say this, but I actually have to get every once in a while a haircut, all right? Now, it's a lot of money per hair, I can tell you that much, but I do go for a haircut. And here in my hometown, I found a barber shop where two of the barbers, Azadine and Mohammed, are both from Morocco and both Muslims. I intentionally pray that my barbers will be prepared for the conversation as I go in to get my haircut. Look for the opportunities. God is preparing the people that you're going with to, to pursue, he, he's pursuing them and you're joining it. Another way I like to summarize it is this. Um, years ago, I had a ruptured disc in my back. And because of that, I was laying flat on the back a long time. And on Labor Day weekend, my wife was working. She was working then in a hospital as a microbiologist. And I, she was working and I was at home. So I did the Law and Order Marathon. And I watched, I think, 11 straight episodes of Law and Order, right? And uh, one of the things that struck me about episode eight, maybe, is the word witness. God calls us witnesses. And what struck me when I was watching Law and Order is we're not the ones building the case or defending the case. God is the one who's building that case in your neighbor or in that Muslim in Morocco or in that person that your missionary partner might be reaching out to in Czech Republic. God's the one doing the work and he calls us in as witnesses. We may be the final witness that turns the verdict of the case and the person turns to Jesus, or we might just be the first one. But look for those opportunities and look for the chance and to be sent. A favorite story that I've told after, after 2013, here in Boston, the, April 2013, we were deeply shaken by the uh, marathon bombing. And uh, two weeks after the marathon bombing, it was instantly done by two guys who were radical extremists, Muslims, and uh, the whole city was afraid of Muslims. And I was at Logan Airport getting ready to fly, and, uh, and I noticed there was a young lady at the newsstand standing all by herself. She had the hijab on of a, of a Muslim lady, and uh, I felt like the Lord said, go say something to her. So I said, okay. So I went over, and because of travels, I knew how to greet her in the Arabic way, and I said to her, salam alaikum. And she immediately burst into tears. And I couldn't figure out what I had done wrong. Because, you know, when you try a foreign language, sometimes you say something you totally didn't mean to sing. So I'm thinking to myself, what did I say? Like, hey, babe, what's up? You know, I didn't know. But I said to her, I'm sorry, why are you crying? Did I say something wrong? She goes, oh, no, you said it perfectly. And then she gave me the response, alaikum salam. I said, why are you crying? She said, I've been standing here for two weeks since the marathon bombing. You're the first human being who has spoken to me. We need to see ourselves as sent into the world. And it could be across the street. It could be across the country. It could be across a culture. But we're sent. God is the great pursuer. And if God is the great pursuer, and he asks us to join him in pursuing, the motive is love. For God, the great pursuer, so loved the world. God's unchanging love is the motive for our mission.
I used to teach at Gordon College here on the East Coast, and I taught survey of world religions. And one of the things you can find in many world religions is the God is vindictive, the God is judgmental, the God is to be feared, as in terrified, but you don't necessarily hear the, adject or the description of God being love. But our God is described as love. Matter of fact, in other passages, it actually says God is love. And unlike the capricious gods of other world religions, God comes looking for us in love. Remember, after he confronts Adam and Eve about their sin, the first thing he does is cover their nakedness out of love. And love is the motive for why we do what we do. It's interesting, in the country of Nepal, which in the 1950s had almost no Christians, it was actually called the Hindu kingdom of Nepal, the breakthrough was the 2015 earthquake. The Christians were the ones reaching out to everybody, no matter what caste they were in the Hindu system, no matter what ethnicity, they would welcome people in, they would house people, they would comfort people who had lost loved ones, they would feed them. They demonstrated God's love, and that became the foundation for declaring God's love. In other words, oftentimes we have to show God's love before we speak God's love. And God's first mission is love. I, I, I've done this new thing where I do it now when I'm just ca casually conversing with people, but I used to do it more when I was on airplanes more, where if I'm sitting next to somebody, inevitably you get into this conversation of, so what do you do, right? And I used to say, well, I'm a consultant or a youth worker or, or I travel internationally and do leadership training, all of which might have been true, but I was kind of dodging the question. But because of the sort of bad name that the word evangelical gets this, this, uh, not these days, I actually now say, um, well, actually, I'm an evangelical pastor. And I wait for their response, you know, 10, 15 seconds, and then I say, now that I've told you that, what do you think I believe? In other words, I'm asking them to tell me what the word means to them. Because uh, one of the answers I get, you know, do you burn down abortion clinics? You know, one guy, I think he was joking, he said, are you packing heat? Because for him, evangelical and NRA was always the same thing, you know. Uh, another fellow asked me, uh, he said, are you one of those people that's always pointing your fingers at all of us, telling us how wrong we are, or how immoral we are? And, uh, but inevitably, I get the chance to sort of correct them and tell them what evangelical actually means. Sometimes people do just, you know, turn the other way. But uh, the most prized position was this guy who identified as ethnically but not religiously Jewish. And he said to me after a few words of conversation back and forth, you know, laughter about the, the way I described it and the way he asked, and he said, so tell me, what is evangelical? And I got a chance to basically unpack John 3.16 for him. You know, because if we care about people, we care more about whether they can hear our message than we care about whether we feel like we've got everything done across to them. Love. The starting point is to remember that God's first mission is not condemnation. John 3, 17 and 18 refer to con condemnation. I'm not den denying that. But the first message is love. Understanding that God's love towards us is our motive in mission. 1 John 4, verse 9 and 10. 
This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In this age of COVID or coronavirus, it's not just about whether or not we're having church services or declaring the good news within our churches. The question is, what are we doing in our communities? Just yesterday, I got an email about a church in Fort Worth, Texas, that is set up in some of the poorest areas of people unemployed, and they're serving meals. That's love, the practical way. So God is the great initiator, and he sends us out motivated by his love for us, and therefore our love for who he loves. And the Bible says that God is not just the great initiator who sends us, and love is not just the motive, but the world is the target. Go back with me for a minute to John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a Jewish rabbi, talking to Jesus, who is called also a Jewish rabbi, would have expected Jesus as a rabbi to say, Nicodemus, God so loved. Nicodemus would have been okay with that. God, he knew that God was a pursuer who had pursued Israel in his rebellion many times. He knew that God was motivated by love. Deuteronomy reminds him that God says, I didn't choose you because of the greatest people. I chose you because I sent my affection on you. But he wouldn't have expected the next phrase. God so loved the world. I could see Nicodemus, the Jewish rabbi, wait, wait a second, Jesus. Don't you mean to say God so loved the Hebrews or God so loved the 12 tribes or the chosen? But Nicodemus would have had to remember in his own testament, declare my glory amongst the nations, my wonderful deeds amongst all people. He would have had to remember that Israel was designed to be a light to the nations, that God's design was that all the earth might fear him. And in Isaiah 49, verse 6, Nicodemus would have been reminded that God actually says through the prophet Isaiah, it's too small for me to be concerned only for the people of Israel. It's not that God wasn't concerned for the people of Israel, it's just too small. He says, I've made you a light of revelation to the Gentiles that all the ends of the earth might fear me. God's love is for the whole world. He wants the whole church to be taking the whole gospel to the whole world. God doesn't want anyone to miss out on his invitation. Whether they're newscasters or politicians, whether they're promoters or, or protesters, whether they're police or they're people on the other side of the police, God's love is for every person. And when we realize that God loves those people, it changes the way we look at them. Brother Andrew, who for many years was a Bible smuggler during the time of communist Russia or communist Soviet Union, um, he now has set his affection upon the Middle East and upon Muslims in Palestine. And he actually says that if you see the word Islam, he's not telling you to embrace Islam, the system, but he says as a Christian, realize that God says to us, I sincerely love all Muslims. God doesn't call us to love the system. He calls us to love the people. And that's God loving the world. But the idea that we're talking about loving the world uh, can be pretty overwhelming. 
because the world, I did some research on this, it's either between 7.5 billion souls or 7.8 billion, billion souls now. And most of us can hardly take care of our own soul, never, met, never mind that many billion souls. But it's overwhelming unless we realize that God is a God of the one and the two. He is the God that counts the hair on our heads. He sees the sparrow that falls. Your one-person effort to your neighbor who might be Hindu, to that person that you meet at Meyer's supermarket who might be from another world religion, those people are loved by God, and you're the one that God brought, God brought them to you. A pastor friend of mine was serving in Toronto for many years, and his church was a very famous uh, mission church, sending people to all corners of the earth. But Toronto is now arguably the most international city in North America. And he said, when this church started, we wanted to take the gospel to all the nations. But now, God has brought all the nations to Toronto. You know, God's love is for the whole world, and that whole world might start, as I alluded to, at the supermarket. Uh, we have a supermarket near us, and if you go through 25 checkout lines, I'm pretty sure you'll get almost 25 different cultures. You can do a prayer walk around the world just by going up and down the aisles, although it might look a little confusing. But the world is right in our own midst. There is no place in the world that's hindered, that's, that's hidden from your prayers. You want to influence North Korea? Go for it. You want to influence the White House? Pray it out. God says he moves the hands of kings and rulers by our prayers. Remember kings and rulers in your prayers. Start locally. You know, do the, do, do, do the thing of reaching out to international students as much as you can find them right now. You know, or first-generation people who have just moved here. I live in Lexington, Massachusetts, where the first battle of the Revolutionary War started. So it's big on American history. But if I walk down my street, I can reach out to the country of China. I can reach out to France. And this is just walking down my street in, in suburban Lexington. I, I can reach out to uh, Korea, Japan, and across the street is a guy from India, and his wife is from Sri Lanka. You know, it's, the world is right around us but we need to open our eyes to see it. You know, even at least up until 2018, it was kind of ironic that, you know, all the brouhaha about our American flag, right? Do you realize that the vast majority of imported American flags are made in China? So when every time I pray for America and I look at the flag, I pray for China because that's where that flag actually came from. And that's related to something that I probably said on previous visits to uh, South Church, and that is this. If you want to start loving the world, do it every day by praying for the country on the label of your clothes. I guarantee you if you go into your closet, you'll find 25 to 35 nations. And many of them are Buddhist countries, Thailand, Sri Lanka, some of them are Hindu countries like Nepal or especially India. Many of them are Muslim countries. I'm sure you'll find Indonesia in there. You'll probably find uh, uh, some countries uh, in uh, Malaysia might be there as well. And, and you know, you'll find China for sure, the world's largest country. And all that's to say, we can pray starting by the, the country, but pray for even the person who made your clothes. God knows who that person is. I love the thought that someday in heaven we'll meet somebody 
who made that t-shirt when you prayed for Egypt. You know, remember to pray and go into all the world that way. The world is our focus and missions is motivated by the pursuing God who sends us. The pursuing God who sends us out motivated by love. The pursuing God who sends us into the world so that everybody will have the opportunity to hear. When you're praying about the world, I forgot to say a moment ago, remember that global family that you have. I think you can get a booklet that gives you all the different partners that South Church partners with. And when you pray for them, you are praying in effect for the world that they touch and you hold them in your prayers before God. But God sends us across barriers, across our fears, across cultures, and across even the, uh, the aisle at the supermarket. God is the great pursuer. The great pursuer motivated by love into all the world, founded on sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The reality is that the work of God in the world is built on the unchanging foundation of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And sacrifice continues to this very day. It, all we do is built on sacrifice. When I served at a, as a church, at a church as a, uh, a missions pastor, we always wrung our hands. Why could we get 1,000 people out to the Christmas pageant and 35 people out to the missions prayer meeting. And I, would, I, I got thinking about it later, and I said, well, in one sense, the missions prayer meeting is more sacrificial. And that's the essence of mission. It's, you know, we have fun if we do short-term mission trips sometimes, but the essence is not fun nor entertainment. It's giving of ourselves. It begins in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love towards us in that uh, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. During this time of coronavirus, when everybody seems to be hunkered down, some of the people that I admire the most are the ones who could have left the place where they were serving, but they didn't. Even if they were encouraged to come home, they didn't. Because they were loving on the people that God sent them to so much that they said, if we're going to perish like Esther, if I perish, I perish. Now the sacrifice that God might call us to make might not be that severe. But we still have to realize that we join in the sacrificial giving of our lives and our resources. I'm at the age now where I'm meeting friends who are leaving and their traditional jobs, retiring, and then using those skills someplace cross-culturally, whether it's with international students here in the United States or someplace else in the world. And they're sacrificing the comforts of retirement, you know, and going to someplace that might be less comfortable. Or even locally, it takes time to build a friendship with someone like my neighbor from India and his wife from Sri Lanka. It takes time. It takes time for me to go home and read a book about Hinduism or about a Buddhism so I can be better at communicating with them the background that they come from. You know, it takes time. 
And that's a sacrifice. It takes money. Let me just say a word of personal encouragement to you at South Church. Many of our mission partners have suffered during this time because everybody's income is a little bit more pinched and as a result, the extra giving is also pinched. And to be generous during this time is ultimately going to be a sacrifice. But it's, it's right out of that 1 John 3.17. We make, take up the sacrificial example of Jesus and we implement it in the way we respond. You know, it, it, if you, if this is the way we love other people. It says if you have the world's goods and you close your heart against the needy person, how can God's love abide in you? So we're looking for a way to join in the sacrifice in getting the work of God done. We're living in times that are oftentimes called unprecedented, unparalleled, you know, different major, major shifts going on in our country and in the world. And we live in all these changing times, but an unchanging, pursuing God sends us out. An unchanging motive of love lies between, behind the things that God did for us and what we do for others. An unchanging focus means we need to see the world around us as people loved by God who need to be invited in to his family. An unchanging foundation of sacrifice calls us to make the, the changes we need to get the job done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The question I need to ask myself and the question I'll leave with you this morning and for this month, am I, are we living John 3.16 lifestyles? Amen.